and hit uh, our live. All right. This. All right, you guys ready to go? I'm gonna hit us live on YouTube, so. Right. All right, here we go. All right, welcome to another edition of New Wine Uncorked. And for those of you who are with us this morning, uh, you know that on Fridays we are going live on YouTube. And so for those of you that are watching this and it's next week, maybe it's Saturday, Sunday, Monday, you're seeing the recorded episode. And so just so you know, on Fridays at 10, uh, we go live. And we're going live is uh, something we've been doing. And so that we can engage uh, at, uh, you can actually engage with us uh, during the, the actual time and put your questions up there, right there uh, to the right of the YouTube. If you're on YouTube with us live, you see the comment section right to the right and you can put the questions or comments and just interact with us. It's a different level of interaction because, you know, as society opens up, so too do ministries and churches and trying to figure this out, right? And so there's been a lot of talk about what is tomorrow going to look like? You know, what is it going to happen when things open up fully? And we're starting to see this and there's both, uh, you know, Shakespeare writes two different kinds, well, he actually writes three, but comedies or tragedies. And what we're seeing is as society enters into this realm of openness, we start to relate to one another more so in intimate levels, meaning physical contact. And we start to see goodness and people being able to love on each other and helping one another. But we also start to see the reality of the human in our need to consume and overcome one another. And as we've seen little bits and pieces of society opening up, we see the good and the not so good, whether that's uh, uh, school shootings, um, or killings or beatings on the streets, or it's the actual people loving on each other and, and, and giving blankets and food. We see this as we start to relate to one another. And so today we want to continue this dialogue that we've been having at New Wine Uncorked on what does this mean uh, to be the church in today's culture. And so there's been talk about going back to normal. Today we want to talk about, so is it going, do we want to go back to normal? Or do we want to go beyond? A few years ago, there was a push to make America great again. Well, that is actually says that there was a period in time where America was great. It's not to deny that the goodness of America, that's not what any one of us here on New Wine and Cork would ever say. There is goodness within America. The question is, is do we want to go back to norm? Because what was the norm that we would go back to? Or... Might the church of the 21st century actually use this moment to push us beyond? Nietzsche had, uh, writes about going beyond, beyond good and evil. Well, what if the church, could the church be the one to actually procure that beyondness? Could we go beyond the norm of what we had in 2020 and 2019 so that the instances that we watch on uh, our phones and our YouTubes of uh, brutality around would not be what uh, we are actually recording. 
What if we started seeing celebrations of life that people on their phone are witnessing and recording as opposed to the beating and the taking of life? So today, we're glad that you're uh, stoked that you're joining us. And so what does it look like when, when you hear going back to normal? What is it that you uh, think about, especially in our context of church, like on Sundays? What would do we want norm? Do we want the norm? And if we're talking about the norm, what is the norm that everyone's seeking back after? Hey, yeah, Matt, um, that's kind of been an underlying theme in our past few conversations here is getting back to normal and, and with the undercurrent that, yeah, there, there is no normal. Um, there is, we definitely have changed over the past year um, in the same fashion that if you remember back 9-11, I mean, can you remember a time that you went to an airport and didn't have to take off your shoes? I mean, we did that before 9-11. <laughs> so, so we're going to be very different, man. America's going to be very different. Our city, Portland, Oregon is going to be very different. Um, and, and I hope it's going to be, it's going to be changed in a good direction. I believe that it's been going in that direction now, but I mean, there's, there's no telling. I mean, we could take the same moment and it's going to regress kind of towards the mean. So we'll make, we'll make a particular few little changes and a few little alterations, but then kind of call that the new normal. And another funny thing with it is us, everyone trying to get, if folks are trying to get back to normal, the notion that normal was okay. I think that's probably the biggest thing that we've been aware of is the fact that normal, what we were before is not okay. And so we needed to move forward. We need to move ahead. It's just what this is going to look like going forward would be the thing. So we'll see what we end up happening. Yeah. With whatever normal is, uh, and we've discussed this before, um, but, uh, there needs to be a distinction uh, between what is normal for society and culture and what is normal for the church. Uh, we've talked about the liturgical calendar and how there's normal time within the church calendar leading up to specific um, events within salvation history that are marked by church celebrations. Uh, but for the world in particular, uh, normal is only ever interrupted by a tragedy. Um, and, and to Phil's point, uh, that's when uh, some alteration of course is made uh, to chart out a new path for a new normal. But I wonder if it isn't because of the church's uh, amnesia or loss of um, identity in what quote unquote normal is and its uh, place in time and space in time, the church pursues the normal of the world and co allows itself to be co-opted and placed into servitude or uh, into comfortability and complacency. And, and, and maybe that's, that's too abstract talking, but I think um, if we're going to speak very concretely like when we look at the history of the united states where slavery was normal and so churches um a significant amount of churches uh, participated in that normal and benefited greatly uh upon the dehumanization and degradation of um, black brothers and sisters so today what is the new normal that we need um to rebuff against, well, it, it, 
for the last however many 12 years, it's been normal to have kids in cages at our Southern border. And um, tragedy has already taken place in those cages. We have reports of sexual abuse. We have reports of um, uh, psychological trauma. And and that's on top of uh, the devastation of COVID and how COVID has ran rampant through our, our, um, uh, our slave camps. Um, and yet for the American church, it is normal to turn almost away from that tragedy. Um, and so whatever normal is, I, I am not a big fan of going towards any type of normalcy. I think the spirit, especially heading into Pentecost Sunday, the spirit disrupts normalcy and the, the eschatological inbreaking breaks apart all forms of normalcy. Do you think um, with when we're talking about normal, though, that it strikes me I mean, you were talking about this. A lot of churches, though, uh, to participate in society, they take on uh, societal garb, you know, to look like society because the church and, and maybe this is a modern um, phenomenon where the church doesn't want to seem too radical. You know, it doesn't want to seem too outside of the, the bounds that actually society has uh, uh, marked out for the church's space. So whereas, um, let's say in the, the medieval and even up to the Reformation, the church carved out its own space. The church made space for um, primarily uh, for its neighbor, i.e., you know, Matthew 25, you know, Lord, Lord, when did we? come and and meet you in prison? When did we feed you? When, you know, and so the church was predominantly that meeting society, you know, we met you in the streets, this kind of thing. And then whether it was the reformation or whether it was 1800s with uh, the dawning of the industrial age, we continue to perpetuate, you know, uh, um, John Calvin talks about how the heart is, is where we create the idols, factory for idols. And so in, in talking about this normalcy, um, you know, uh, before uh, I've, I, I remember reading this article where it's talking about, hey, making America great again, it depends on whose perspective. You know, um, if you, I mean, I'm 1960s is not something where, hey, you or Phil are going, yeah, you know what? I think we should go back to the 60s. I mean, that was a great time for my people, right? If you two are sitting there thinking, okay, well, when is when was it like greatness? Well, what about for me, right? And I, I wonder sometimes with that mantra, and, and, and I was reading this article today on uh, um, the movements within politics, bipartisan, that the Republicans are more for power and the Democrats are more for truth. I'm like, but is that the case? So when we go back to normal, you know, politically, aren't they just the same? They're the, they're the same coin, two sides of the same coin, Democrats, Republicans. So as we push back into normal, what though are the idols? I was thinking about this. What is it though that the church is holding up? Is the church holding up the message, the truth, the proclamation of Jesus Christ as it goes in? 
Or is it actually, has it actually taken that message of the Bible and actually molded it to fit its own needs so as to seem important in today's society, but not seem radically on the fringe? You know, we need a comfortable Jesus. So what is it that is leading the church, though, to believe that the normalcy of today, without even questioning, as you were saying, Tony, well, is this normal good for all? Because Christ came, you know, God so loved the world cosmos. So the normal that we're going back to here in the United States, is it good for all? And if it's not, what are the idols? What are the things that the church, I'm talking church, people who profess Jesus Christ in today's culture, 21st century, what are some of the things that you see uh, hindering the true celebration of, you know, this Sunday, the Pentecost, the descent of the spirit onto the church? Are we stopping the movement of the spirit, you know, with our idols of today? In some regard, yeah, I think we are. I mean, we have molded a Christianity that looks far more American than it looks like New Testament. So, so yeah, definitely. I, I believe in some regard we are. There are there are things that we question, that we look at, and that we wonder. So, for instance, um, just with the notion of unity and how the church, how we operate amongst our just different divisions on you know, at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And mm. right now, and the fact that, you know, we're all, yeah, where we choose to gather and, and, and just how the differences and who's not in our attendance, where's our bad guys, you know, when we look at the people where we, uh, where we meet, and it just doesn't demonstrate God's glory in the way that the New Testament would want to demonstrate. But at the same token, those divisions seem to kind of always have existed within the church and something that the church has kind of always been pushing through. I don't know if today is any worse than it's been in any other time in history, but I definitely don't think it's any better than it's been in any other time in history. And so, you know, I hope that we would move towards it. And this moment could be an opportunity for us to move towards it. But I just think we're so accustomed to how it's been that we're going to revert back to it. No matter what changes, tweaks that we make to it, we're gonna revert back to what we were before. And we're kind of, in a sense, gonna lose more ground in just who we are as a church. So. Yeah, the, uh, I have the privilege of preaching this Sunday. And right. what I'll, I'll be talking about is um, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, where Paul talks about the spirit plums the depths of God and, and reveals to us the wisdom of God. And Paul makes a delineation between that which is spiritual and unspiritual, and only those who are spiritual can discern spiritual things. And I think for so long, uh, Western evangelicalism uh, makes that delineation or that demarcation between spiritual and unspiritual as uh, that which is material and immaterial. Um, so the physical is unspiritual and that which is uh, spiritual of higher things is not physical. But I think if we take a closer look at the passage, that which is, it, it's not a delineation between the material and immaterial. That which is spiritual and unspiritual is actually in regards to uh, uh, what God, what the Holy Spirit gives gifts to, how God takes up space and reveals God's self through revelation. Um, and so it, it's a movement beyond this binary of material to immaterial, and, and it moves closer to how does God reveal God's self? I say all of that because 
I think it's easy for Western Christians to get caught up in the normalcy of pitting material against immaterial, spiritual against unspiritual. But what we really need uh, to be focusing on is, is how the spirit leads us in discernment um, to see that that which is being revealed by God is not the uh, battle between material and immaterial. It's that actually God has become material through the incarnation because Earlier in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says everything he stakes his proclamation on is the crucifixion. That's the entirety of his proclamation and not his lofty words or or, uh, wisdom, but so that the power of the Holy Spirit would be made evident and that our faith would rest upon that power, the power that is Christ crucified. Um, And um, Paul uses a Greek philosophical principle of like can only be like. Um, so uh, o- only God knows God's thoughts and only humans know human thoughts, but God transgresses that boundary and God becomes human. Therefore now God knows human thoughts and through the incarnation, humans can then know God's thoughts because the spirit reveals the depths of God, which is uh, more clearly displayed than ever on the crucifixion. So the battle that we wage and, and the normalcy we look for is not a normalcy of uh, against uh, flesh and blood, but it's against principalities that, that take hold against um, God's creation. And, and the crucifixion is, is the, the central event that rebuffs any notion that there's normalcy outside the suffering of God because the suffering of God takes us into the depth of God as, um, as revealed by the spirit. And so I, I think in our privileged triumphalistic society, we, we take the Holy spirit as the great comforter who pushes us into comfortability rather than the Holy spirit who comforts us because we are invited to suffer alongside one another because Mm -hmm there is no God, but the crucified God. Uh, and we, I, I've quoted it before, but only a suffering God can help. That's what Bonhoeffer says as he's in prison, uh, some nine odd months before he's executed. Only yeah. a suffering God can help. So whatever sense of normal that we aim for, there can be no normal without suffering because God doesn't turn away from suffering. God looks at suffering because God the Son suffered, and God himself suffers. He looks at all suffering. There's no normal that we can pursue if we don't address and account for the suffering of the world. Yeah. Phil, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to just say, thinking of, we like easy distinctions. We like to go sacred, secular. We like to go material, immaterial. We don't like the distinction that said, 100% 100% God, 100% man invading time and space to touch our sin because he's so holy. He can't be around sin at all, but he then touches and puts upon himself our sin, right? We don't like those messy distinctions. And so, and that implies, relates to how we minister to people as well and how we reach out to people and who we want in our congregation when we're together. We don't want messy people there, but Jesus came to the messiest of people, <laughs> came to us you know? And so it just, that just kind of plays into what you're talking about, Tony, is just, we don't like the messiness, but well, Jesus, and, 
jumped into the messiness. Go ahead. Not not just the messiness too. We create it. I, w- I don't know if you guys have seen this. There's this big push now. I was reading this uh, for this God bless America or God bless the USA Bible, you know, and uh, this is coming from a major publisher. I think it's Zondervan who's trying to publish this the 20 year anniversary of 9-11, they're trying to release uh, this, uh, God bless the USA Bible. How can a nation who seeks to one nation under God think to create a normalcy that's universal, that seeks to bring in the, the truth of love the Lord your God, love your neighbors yourself, if it's creating a Bible that says clearly God blesses this? That the USA, it's almost a arrogant insinuation that now USA is what? Displaced or re- replaced Israel as if the chosen people, you know, that's kind of what it pushes. How is normalcy coming under a, a, a nation that is creating its own Bible? Like, how does the church push against that? Well, let's stick with the, let's stick with the messiness. Um, there, there is a... There is a level of saying America has definitely experienced God's blessing. There's a level we could say that. Yes, there's a level at the same time we could say America has been entirely horrible with all the blessing that God has given us and all the opportunity that God has given us. Yeah, both those things are simultaneously true. And how do we live out an experience where both those things remain true? Consistently looking at how we live out our freedoms in Jesus and say, yo, we have this past, we have this history, we have this, the potential to continue to live into the history, this negative, horrible history, but still in all, enjoy and embrace the blessings of God while living into his blessing to overcome the things that we've, that we've lived into. But just, yeah, the reality of living into both those realities simultaneously, where we have this crazy history, but then still have experienced his blessing, is part of the mess that, that we have to live into. Yeah, I I think I would sit on a different hill than that. I, I, I would say I don't think the United States has ever been blessed by God. I think everything the United States has is stolen, um, uh, whether it be land from Native Americans or on the back of uh, slaves um, or on the back of Chinese railroad workers um, or uh, right now on the backs and through the toil of um, uh, Mexican and Central American immigrants. Like, I don't think God blesses dehumanization. Um, well, at least the God of Exodus doesn't. Um, God actually abhors slavery, um, but the United States is founded upon the principle of slavery. And so whatever quote unquote good or material good the United States has, um, if, if it is by God's hand, then God condones the the raping and pillaging of first nations um and and so and i know that's not what you're saying phil i'm just trying to make a distinction for those who are listening because i think what what we fail to understand especially with like zondervan what a great money ploy after 2011 when everyone was like oh the niv zondervan has gone liberal look at the tniv with the gender stuff no better way for zondervan to say no we're actually center right look at us with our patriotic bible i think what the american church has done is it's become the priest of american folk religion and the American folk religion has, but all religions 
nationalistic religions and tendencies and behaviors have this bent, which is we make sacred our suffering and we agnosticize other people's suffering. We uh, disembody other nations' sufferings so that when we cause suffering to other nations, it, it's removed of God. It's disembodied. It's ethereal. It's an idea. It's abstract. When we drop a bomb on another nation, it's very digital. Um, there is no material loss for us because it's out there over there. And God bless us to bomb the heck out of other countries. Like, so we, we make sacred our suffering and we remove God from uh, other nations. But then we think of Palestinian Christians, Palestinian Christians, brothers and sisters who are now under um, under conflict, under oppression, under tyranny. What, what, like how, how is that not sacred? How is God absent from that? God, God doesn't remove himself. We remove God from that space. Yeah, but don't you think too, though, Tony, and I hear what you're saying, but with that, even still to deny that there's blessings, like, isn't that to deny the sovereignty of God? Because like Salvation Army, you know, that started with it. That's a blessing that works through. So like, so the country America might be not blessed. Okay. But the people of America, right. So to say that, oh, I can't see, like, I think that's where the messiness comes in with Phil is like, it can't because to say that there's no blessing, isn't that just as extreme as to say that America is the blessed of God, right? Like we're not, I think we have to get into that uneasy space of ambiguity uh, to where we're like, ah, it could be anything so as to pine into the depths of uh, specificity, right? And so, so often we get caught either in the specific or in the universal and then our language is so ambiguous. And that's the thing is like, that's the messiness is we need some generalizing, right? We need universal in the sense of God so loved the world. That's the universal, that's holistic. And yet he specifically says, look, how did I know that you were loving on me? Specifically, you were the least of these, the mm -hmm. in prison, the hungry, the, so I, I hear what you're saying, but even still though, Tony, don't we as uh, uh, Christians need to even be, uh, mindful of the language that we're because we don't want to just throw uh, fuel on the fire and say, well, well, she, I didn't create this fire. You know, I'm just, you know, so. No, totally. Uh, and this is where I'm so formulating and growing in my thoughts around God's providence and sovereignty and his eminence in mm. our world. Um, I think where, where I'm still developing is I just, I, I have a hard time uh, attributing material um, resource as a as evidence for God's totally, problems, you know, totally. and and people will call me a socialist all they want, but I wonder how much of that isn't like a product of uh, capitalism. Like um, Eugene McGrearer, I'm butchering his last name. He's he's a uh, uh, professor theologian. He wrote a book called The Enchantment of Mammon. And he talks about how money has displaced God. In money, we trust. Money affords us uh, the type of life we want. Um, and, and so uh, money is directly tied to material. Money actually has no real ontological status 
until we assign it real being. And yeah. now we, we, we've succumbed to that status. And so I want, but, and so my, yeah, where I'm struggling is when I read in uh, the scriptures in the new Testament of God providing material uh, blessing, I wonder if that isn't different than the way we experience material blessing today though, because of the economic systems and the like, if you will. And then when we read like church planting memoirs or materials, it's always like, I prayed for a car. God gave me a car, but it's like, man, those are puny prayers. Like, don't get me wrong. When, when, when a single mother prays for a car and God gives her a car, praise to the Lord of hosts of angels. Like I, I really believe God came through in that one, but when homie has some air Jordans on and you know, he's on his fourth latte of the day uh, and he prays, God, give me a car. And it turns out to be a BMW, whatever series. And so he can post it on Instagram. I don't know if Jesus died for that type of prayer. Yeah. Well, and so isn't that the case though? Like when you start to bring money in, because, and I know this is, and I don't know what to do with this. If the Jesus is clear when it comes to entrance into heaven, right? What does he say? He, and this is something we have to wrestle with. He doesn't say it'll be tougher for the rapist or the racist you know, or the jerk, he says, it'll be tougher for the rich to enter heaven than a, a camel through the eye of the needle. And, and in our talks on racism and social justice, I find it kind of intriguing how we tend to shy away from the economics, you know, and I wonder sometimes if the economics, so not being brought into the picture, because then you have to, you have to acknowledge though, that within uh, um, the racial structure of society, there still are those who are rich that are black, that are Mexican, that are Asian, as well as white. And, and I'm not saying that it is an equality of richness within society by no means. I do believe that it's heavily favored towards lighter skin. So I, I still think we have the racialized system of economics for sure but not to allow the money aspect because then it does become a material thing. Because when I talk about God's sovereignty, I hear what you're saying. It's not material because then the, the Joel Austin's and the, the churches, you know, even back in the day with uh, Willow Creek and, and, and uh, chump uh, dude down uh, South in, in, in California, um, Rick Warren, you know, well, materialism would say, if we're focusing on that blessings, they have 10, 20,000, 60,000 person churches, obviously they have to be blessed if you're going, but that again, goes back to your point of it's so dualistic since the Cartesian model hit the church, you know, which was commissioned by the church. I think therefore I am, we have become dualistic in the separation of the body and the mind, right? We become separated in the sense of we are either, it's either thinking theoria or action praxis you know the the practical it's never the same so when we talk about theological biblical usually what we're saying is exactly what you're saying tony it's ethereal it's way up here and so out that we have such a distinction as oh professional theologians so you two will join my ranks right as you finish your doctorates then you now become one of us the professional theologians and we walk around with the but that's not the case in the Bible. Jesus wasn't a professional theologian, but he was just as much of a theologian as we are all called to be, right? To interact with this God. So how do though we get to, to the reality of that, that this theology? And I think we're missing a theology of offering, you know, offering insinuates surrender, 
sacrifice and then a giving of, you know, that's what Jesus did. He came first as the ultimate offering, but then in that offering, it was sacrificial and then giving, you know, it was Eucharistic. I mean, and this is where theology really, we have to understand this, where, where are the people engaging the Bible, but also engaging one another? This theology of, is the church even offering herself anymore? Are Christians, or have we been so commodified ourselves that to offer what we do is strings attached? Hey, we're going to offer this gospel, but oh, there's a price to be paid. And we're going to tell you what it is. You have to do this, this, and this. And so if you don't meet these parameters, this isn't offered to you. Like, because there's no such thing as theology, theology of suffering says that regardless of who you are, because if you talk to anyone in life, regardless of what color, what uh, uh, sexual preference, uh, what uh, money they have, they've suffered. And any one of us can tell you that suffering is real. And it's one of the things that unifies us. So what is it that the church though has to offer as we step into this push to normalcy? What does the church need to be offering compared to what has the church been offering that has been leading us astray? Um, we offer um, plastic masks and um, perfect life that, you know, you come to <laughs> straight teeth problems will be squared away. You won't have any further problems. You'll be in your Jordans on your fourth latte and God will just drop an E-class Mercedes out of the sky right in front of you. Keys will already be created in your pocket for the. OK, so what do we offer? That becomes the question, though. If we don't come to reality, life demonstrating that in the midst of struggling, in the midst of pain, Jesus has shown up with me and I've shown up in the lives of others. And Jesus, because Jesus has freely loved me, I can freely love others and show up in their lives to demonstrate his love in their lives. That's the kind of stuff we should be offering as the church. But instead, we typically offer, hey, man, that struggle isn't real. Hey, man, look at this exception, the person that came out of the ghetto that you're talking about. You can do that, too. And that becomes the reality. It was just like, well, that becomes a demonstration of God. But no, being able to show up and express God's love because you were true. That's what generosity looks like. You've been freely loved. Therefore, you can freely love. You can walk alongside other people and you can you can live with them amid their suffering. And um, that's the stuff that we should be offering as the church. I don't know what else. There's probably a whole bunch of other things we can offer, but that's one of the things we can offer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I am so, uh, so blessed and fortunate to be working under alongside the, um, the pastors and the staff that I do. Because every day I learn from them that the greatest offer we have to give is ourselves. Um, I, I, I've never, um, been a part of a team that so freely gives of themselves. And, and I mean, like our senior pastor, isn't just like standing on top of a pulpit and telling us, Hey, be self-sacrificial. Like he lives it out daily. My, my senior leadership team lives out daily, a giving of themselves like our, the messages that I've heard proclaimed at church aren't messages of, hey, this is the potential future that God has for you. And we all need to just aim for that. But rather it's, this is the life that we have 
to live together. And this is how I give myself to you and you give yourself to me and we give ourselves for others. And, and so I think it's, uh, that's the true material that we have to offer is ourselves. And so from, from yeah, my, my senior leadership down to me, a lowly peon, uh, I, feel, I feel so fortunate and blessed to be a part of a church that really believes in wringing ourselves out for the sake of the kingdom, of, of uh, throwing our lives at, um, at injustice for the sake of others. And so whatever the church has to offer, I, I would hope that the church I'm a part of is on that path um, and, and that this is the kingdom in breaking, that we are to give our lives for one another. Do you think, though, uh, Tony and Phil, this is the same thing, because we've all, um, whether it's now or in the past, uh, been church leadership, uh, help with leading churches. Even in that saying, though, uh, Tony, because I'm working on my uh, understanding of language, too, and the way in which I employ it. But uh, and you weren't this isn't how you view yourself. But even with our languages of lowly uh, plebeian, like lowly uh, peon, uh, this hierarchy, you know, we still have hierarchy within the church. And I, I've been reading through, um, you know, First Corinthians. I'm doing this little study uh, just to see how Paul's relating to his church. And going back to Jesus and Jesus's words, just I think are so frightening for a lot of church leaders that today you are my co-heirs. You are my brothers and sisters as if I'm not above you. Right. And so a church model that would follow the, the, the really the model of Jesus would be much more collaborative and much more of a of a team. That's, I think that's scary though. When we start talking about pressing into Jesus, I think church leadership is like, Hey, that's cool and everything, but we don't want to get too much of the Jesus model because we need our position and power. Right. Yeah. No, I, I don't get a whiff of that at all for my church. And like some people may call themselves lowly and peons as like self-deprecating humor. Sure. I call it because that's something I need to believe. Like I'm the most egotistical, prideful guy I know. Like, uh, and, and you, I, you can hang out with me for a couple of times. I'm sure we can find some, no, I'm sure Phil knows some people too. No, Maybe even Phil's more egotistical than me or you, or I'm more, we can uh, have a competition. No. Cause we've talked about like my vocation is self-deception. I love deceiving myself. <laughs> I love talking myself up. I love displacing responsibility. I love, uh, I am addicted to never being the problem. And so I know like, I'm not trying to be self-deprecative. I, I, if anything, I, I want to uh, follow closely to the Apostle Paul when he says, like, I'm the chief of all sinners. Well, if Paul's already claimed that, I, can I be assistant chief? Like, can I, can I be a director of a department? Can I manage? Like, because I just, I, I know I'm prone to wander. Like, like um, uh, if it wasn't for the son who goes into the far country, I would have built my estate on the border of hell and earth. Like, I just, I just know what I'm capable of. Yeah. And so um, don't you think that's where we need to get out though? Like, this is where I'm thinking I'm pressing into the, the unprecedented, you know, Bart says the, the impossible possibility, right? Because you're right. I think the going beyond though, is getting from what Paul says, I am the chief of sinners to recognizing though, that I am the chief of creation in the sense, the centerpiece, because on the cross, Jesus saw me, he saw Matt Farlow and he didn't see 
like I get what you're saying there need that that simultaneity of what uh, Luther was wrestling with that once I am sinner and saint there needs to be a balance but not really we need to radically be in Christ so that I see my self exaltation but it's not self-driven it's self because the crazy part of Philippians 2 it says that Christ was created he came in the likeness of man so while we are created in his image he then flips the script and says I'm going to come actually in your likeness for for other people I totally think that they need to live more into what Christ has done for them and live in that reality um and and they need to be uh dissuaded uh, and disabused of the notion that they're filthy sinners because that has been used as a controlling technique for their lives where men of power will tell them you're a sinner and you need to listen to me um therefore i am the way uh, to Jesus, but no, actually Jesus is the way to himself and to the father. And so for, I think for a large majority of the church, yes, we, we need to proclaim the radicalization of how uh, we're simultaneously saint and sinner. Um, but for them, the saint reality is the container for the sinner reality. And then for a small minority who are, uh, uh, excellent at self-deception. I count myself among those unfortunate few. I, I think there needs, uh, especially as leaders, I think to let go too quickly of the reality of how depraved we are only leads further to the being enamored with power. And so, and, and, and like it, for people who know me in real life and, and Matt, you and Phil, like I'm not like that sad of a guy. I'm pretty jovial. Like I just, I, 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 I'm, I'm pretty, yeah, I, I got puns for days and I shoot from the hip, but I just, I know for the sake of my soul, like I, I need to hang out at Golgotha more than I, I, I hang out in any upper room. Like I, mm. I need to be in that place of, of, uh, of darkness uh, b- because it's a place of submission. It's a place where I do that inner work that really shows like, oh, all I have is Christ. But the minute that there are lights, like that's when I, I get wide-eyed and I dream about the future and possibilities. But the only possibility that saves is a possibility that God suffered and died for a sinner like me. And so I agree with you. And this is not something I would prescribe for, for uh, the regular parishioner, not regular, for any parishioner. This is something I would prescribe for people who have egos that, man, we gotta, we gotta destroy that, that, that part of ourselves where, where Paul says he whips himself into, um, into this type of spirituality or if you if people love the really bad uh, angels and demons by Dan Brown, you know the guy <laughs> his back. Like I, in some ways, I think I need that. Or else I think I can save myself. Like I, I'm 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 foolish enough to think I can save myself. Or or, yeah, that's just self deception. <laughs> yeah, and definitely that that last thing you said, Tony. Yeah, we. It's not just you. All of us as believers, we get to this notion that we're bringing Jesus to the party now. <laughs> he wasn't there before we got here. We're bringing him here because I grabbed Jesus, threw him on the cross, pulled him down, and now we're walking together. Nah, man. 
Yeah, just the reality of um, just what, what the work that I do um, every day at, at the harbor, working with men that are working through recovery, um, the reality of seeing their story and knowing that, yeah, you know, one step to the left, one step to the right, I'm in the same spot you're in. And so I understand on a regular basis, the, the grace of God just in my life, knowing that, whoa, okay, I could have, that really could have been me. Um, and even like talking about us, them, it, it just bugs me because it's like, no, we're, we're in this together. Yeah, I don't have the same history that you have, but I'm with you in the middle of walking this. Not only that, I see your story. I see who you are. Um, and, and I see dignity and I see God's love here. And I see a brother in Christ walking with me. And um, yeah, every day, that, that's what I try to live into, walking into the office, working with the men. And yeah, when I'm wandering around downtown Portland or wherever, and I'm looking at people, it's like, I'm just thinking if I miss two paychecks, I'm on the corner right beside you. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah, that's what D.L. Moody said, right? When they said, why do you keep giving bread to the to the you know person on the street? He's like, because they're but by the grace of God, go I, you know? Uh, and so that's exactly, and that's the heartbeat of New Wine is that not just seeing the other and not this uh, uh, holier than thou, like I'm going to take myself from where I'm at and, and place myself in your situation so I can understand what it must be like to be you. No, no. It's actually seeing ourselves in the person, right? Yes, that experience is not mine. It is yours. But in order for it to be full, I have to be willing to step into life together. You know, and I think that's the point. Isn't that the going beyond is the willingness? Isn't that the theology of suffering? Is that I'm willing to take a, a step back from my situation in I think the tough part for most of us, and especially, you know, like you're talking about, Tony, and Phil even said this too, like we all are egotistic, you know, we're all self-driven. I mean, in America, how can you not be? That's the mantra, you know, is self-determination, self-sufficiency, self-promotion, right? That's why we're talking a lot about, well, is the Messiah of America, our political party, a political person, or really is the Christian church prominent enough in America so that the Messiah is Jesus Christ. So this is the con continued conversation. I think it's exciting, Tony, because you're preaching this weekend and it's about the spirit, right? And for the spirit to be alive today is the, the, the necessity for the church to go beyond normal, right? To actually bring this world, the truth of Jesus Christ and his healing, uh, um, balm that been poured out from the cross. And so we're stoked for each one of you joining us today here on Facebook uh, live every Friday at 10 a.m. And if you miss it or if you want to share it with your friends, the uh, live broadcast, will, the uh, episode will be uploaded uh, over the weekend or on Monday. So you could come back and watch the full episode and you can share it with your friends. And if you're on live uh, Facebook or YouTube right now, just go right below that and hit subscribe. So that every Friday, right before we go, you'll get a notification that says, hey, the uncorked dudes are going live. Or you could go on over to our Facebook page, Facebook forward slash new wine. 
new wineskins and hit like, and then you'll be updated on any time we post. Uh, we have a, a blog going on at our actual page, new-wineskins.org. And there you can find blogs, you can find upcoming events, uh, you can find ways to interact with the things that Phil has going on, the things that Tony has going on, things that I've going on, the things that New Wine is doing in general uh, in the Portland, the Washington, the Northwest, as well as across the nation. Because at New Wine, we're about stepping into culture, Christ-centered, spirit-led living, seeking to elevate the other. And so we're stoked that you joined us today. And we hope that, you know, the, the Lord continues to reveal this truth, right? This truth of peace and hope, uh, what it means to be created in the image of a loving God. So on behalf of my uh, good friends and colleagues, uh, Phil and Tony, I'm Matt. This has been New Wine Uncorked. Until next time, we'll see you on the flip side. All right, dudes. Awesome. You guys enjoy uh, your weekend, whatever you have planned and stuff.